This week on New Mexico in Focus, it's back to school as the governor targets February 8th to bring kids back. But dealing with the virus must not and will not derail our focus on improving outcomes in public education. We'll have reaction to the State of the State address and much more. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. We'll have extended analysis of the Governor's State of the State Address with our special line opinion panel of former lawmakers. We'll also talk about the state's troubled vaccine rollout and whether it's a supply chain issue or if local logistics need rethinking. We'll also discuss an Associated Press investigation showing legislators who accepted coronavirus aid for small businesses. And we'll talk to the author of a New Mexico in-depth report on lobbyists who have found themselves frozen out of the Capitol. Here's the line. Happy Friday, January 29th, the last Friday in January 2021. Just flying by, right? Uh, welcome, welcome. Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And you are listening to the New Mexico in Focus podcast edition for this week. And it seems like I say this every week, but quite an unusual week. The main reason for that, as you heard in our open to the show, the state of the state was this week, a week later than usual, very uh, under normal circumstances. It's one of the very first things that happens during the session, about an hour to two hours after the session is called into order. This year, that was January 19th, but the state of the state was postponed in part because lawmakers had a lot of work to do to figure out exactly how this year's legislative session was going to run, given that the roundhouse is closed to the public, that lawmakers are doing a lot of their work remotely. Not all of them are physically there in the roundhouse. They had to agree on exactly how all that was going to work out. And again, the day after the start of the session was Inauguration Day. And so the governor uh, released her State of the State speech this week in a pre-recorded message. That means it was a lot shorter, just a shy bit over 26 minutes. Uh, we want to let you know that we're proud to have helped to, to bring that to folks uh, by recording that speech and getting it uh, distributed on air at New Mexico PBS, as well as on all of our social media platforms. This is all part of our Your New Mexico Government project that we are uh, engaged in with KUNM Radio as well as the Santa Fe Reporter. And thanks to funding for public media in that venture with the Thornburg Foundation. Uh, this week, we're going to dive into a lot of what the governor did and did not say in her state of the state speech. Very heavy focus on COVID, on education, the public health response, and the economy. Uh, those were the big things for obvious reasons. And as usual, after a state of the state, we wanted to gather together former lawmakers to get their perspective. They've been through this process. They've uh, been through state of the state speeches and seen how those translate into actual legislation and proposals and the push for those uh, pieces of legislation. And so we always are thrilled to be able to tap into those resources of folks who have been there and seen it and done it. And so joining us this week, we have Dan Foley, former House Minority Whip, uh, also a former representative, Justine Fox-Young. And skipping over to the Senate side, we have former Senator Eric Griego, 
and former and longtime Senator Dee Dee Feldman. All familiar names here on the show. Uh, they have great insights, and we want to kick things off right now. I want to warn you, this is an extra long chunk about some of those key parts of the State of the State speech. You're going to hear talk about broadband, uh, and you're going to hear about diversifying the economy. And, of course, the big news that came out of the State of the State address was word from the governor, first word, actually, that the Department of Education has worked out a plan that they think is safe and uh, is good to go in terms of schools reopening in person in some capacity. Caught a lot of people off guard. You'll hear talk about that, including school districts and educators. And uh, so that, again, is supposed to, can start as early as February 8th. And so the line panelists are going to talk about all of those things right now. Let me turn it over to Gene. A little later and a lot shorter, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham gave lawmakers a week to sort out their hybrid session and get to work before delivering her State of the State address. Without guests and without pomp and circumstance, the speech clocked in at a hair over 26 minutes. Now here to share some thoughts, our line opinion panel made up of former lawmakers. Joining us through the magic of Zoom is former state senator and line regular Dee Dee Feldman. Eric Griego is also a former state senator. He is also head of the New Mexico Working Families Party. Justine Fox Young is also with us. She's a former state rep and a local attorney. And finally, we've got former House Minority Whip and line regular Daniel Foley. Welcome all. Now, saying educators, staff, students, and parents had gone the extra mile, and then the extra mile after that, the governor's big news was a February 8th target to bring students of all kinds back to the classroom. Let's first start with a couple of minutes of what the governor said about classroom education and the budget. Teachers and school support staff all across New Mexico went the extra mile this year, and then the extra mile after that, too. I'm in awe of your commitment and your integrity. And I will say clearly, none of you, no educator, no school worker, should ever have to choose between your health and the students you serve. And that's why my administration has been methodical and tireless in working with superintendents, charter leaders, the Department of Health, the medical advisory team, and NEA and AFT to enhance the safety of school buildings and expand surveillance testing. There's no substitute for in-person learning. And there's no negotiating about the health and safety of students, families, and educators. And I believe the planning and hard work has paid off. And our state has developed a solid, epidemiologically sound plan for a safe expansion of in-person learning for all age groups supported by union leadership. We will get this right and we will move forward. And every school district in the state will be able to welcome all ages of students safely back to the classroom on February 8th. And that's not all. Yes, COVID has disrupted classrooms in New Mexico and indeed across our whole country. But dealing with the virus must not and will not derail our focus on improving outcomes in public education, on necessary long-term investments in family well-being and the health of school communities across the state. We will enact, 
an equity-first budget for public education, ensuring money reaches students and schools in proportion to the socioeconomic needs of families in the community, laying the path to a public education system that truly delivers for students now and a hundred years from now, no matter their zip code, their family circumstances, or the color of their skin. You know, from a learning standpoint, I can't imagine anyone thinks this is a bad idea, but Eric Griego, I gotta ask you, what about logistics? I mean, schools don't have to open, they're leaving it up to districts themselves, but you know, the student population should be limited and in, in, in small in some ways. Your first blush, is this gonna work? Is it too early? I mean, is it well, is it thought out enough? What's your sense of it? Well, I noticed APS is already raising some pretty major concerns, um, mm -hmm. and uh, my son, my son goes to uh, one of the charters here, and so they're going to kind of make their own decision. They're trying to wind their way through it. Um, so I, I think it is quick, but I, anybody who has kids at home, um, and my, and I say this as my wife being an educator, like you know, there are real health concerns and safety concerns, but at the same time. If you have kids at home, I mean, everybody's eager to get them back in the classroom. And uh, I know he's he's ready. And um, we have to do it safely. But I, I am I am hopeful that we can figure it out sooner rather than later. If they need a couple of weeks, I get it. But if it's a couple more months, I'm going to be I'm going to be really disappointed. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, a, it's the parents uh, lament you're expressing there, Justine. You know, we're reliant on weekly testing and vaccination. APS says. It had trouble even getting, you know, testing 10% of its staff when you think about it. And there's a lot of teachers out there saying they are very reluctant to get back in the classroom unless there is a vaccination. And the governor says the two unions are on board, but individually, like I said, you know, they're nervous about returning to the classroom. What, what should we be saying to teachers about this? Yeah, I mean, I, from what I've heard anecdotally, teachers, parents, students are pretty shocked at this February 8th date. Mm -hmm. Everything that the governor delivered in that message seems pretty abstract to me, except for this precise date. And then, you know, you've got this statement that the unions are on board and that they've worked everything out epidemiolo epidemiologically, but this is four days after, you know, canceling a mass vaccination clinic for Rio Rancho teachers. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm a, I'm a little perplexed. It seems to me like the governor's punting and and getting on the right side politically of the issue and certainly taking the tack that i mean i i don't think anybody disagrees kids need to get back for mm -hmm. so many reasons but um but where's the detailed plan and how are vaccinations not a part of that plan um and, and so it's kind of easy to kick it to the locals and kick it to the teachers and say well the unions are on board now you guys figure it out i don't think ultimately that's going to be a winning political position for her because almost a year into this, you know, they've been micromanaging every aspect of the response to the pandemic and there needs to be a detailed plan. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm wondering why they're, why we're not hearing those details on exactly the vaccination schedule, mm -hmm. what the testing regimen will look like and, and why we are all to understand that everybody will be kept safe. Mm -hmm. Senator Feldman, pick up on that if you would. I mean, it's a legit question. Vaccinations are out there, but they're not. <laughs> I mean, how, how do, uh, these two things are, are clashing, it seems to me. Yes, I mean, I think this is a classic case of mixed messaging. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, it surprised me, frankly. I think it can only be explained by the immense pressure 
that the governor was getting to reopen the schools. Um, and a recent report from the CDC that said that um, schools were not a major source of community spread. So um, that perhaps gave a, um, a green light. But, you know, the, ma the majority of our counties are still in the red district, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we do not have vaccinations for, uh, for teachers. Uh, I think in spite of the union support, uh, teachers have real questions about whether uh, 25 to 50 percent of the, uh, the workforce can be tested every week or every two weeks. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty high hurdle. And, um, you know, and whether, uh, whether if they opt out of the system, they will be guaranteed uh, a, a right to say, you know, whether, where they want to teach. I think this was one of the major drawbacks. Uh, teachers who were older or who felt their health at issue were given the right to opt out, but then uh, they, there were certain consequences to that. That's right. Interesting points you brought up there. Daniel, um, if you could start with Didi's point about teachers choosing not to get vaccinated and in the, in the right to do that, but I have some other questions about uh, budget for you specifically. But I want to give you a, ch a chance on the vaccination sh uh, deal as well. Yeah, I mean, it's the million dollar, it's the age old question, right? I mean, you know, there's the, the, the anti-vaccination movement has grown in the last few years. Uh, become a lot more public, become a lot more, you know, with instant, with, uh, with you know, the, the media access, with the celebrities that have gotten on board with, you know, being against vaccinations. So, you know, it's a huge question, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there's people that have been talking about, why do you, why do you, why do you keep my kid from getting an education if I'm opposed to these vaccinations? Now the tables have turned, right? Now you got teachers saying, hey, listen, I'm opposed to taking the vaccination. Why are you going to keep me from doing my job? So it's an um, and it's one that's going to have to be addressed one way or the other. And I'm not sure if it's going to be addressed by politicians or by courts. Mm -hmm. Interesting last sentence there. Hey, dude, I got something for you, though, about equity based budgeting. We've talked about this at the table. You've been a part of this. It's clearly a nod to Yazzie Martinez. There's no doubt about that. But this is something you've long project predicted, my friend, that the state would start to feel the price tag of compliance and then try to ease out of that burden at some point. I remember you being very strong on that way, way, way back. What's your, what's your sense of it now that we're getting a clearer picture of this? Yeah, I, I think it's just going to get worse. I mean, I think, you know, once they, once, you know, I, I, you know, I had said from the very beginning that it wasn't a partisan issue, in my opinion, mm -hmm. that I think for the governor and the legislature to back out of suing, uh, being involved in, in telling that judge, you don't have the right to uh, dictate how we're going to create budgets is a slippery slope. And, uh, you know, uh, look, there's no doubt that there's questions about the budgeting process. No one's denying that. We have these conversations. It always gets turned around that, you know, if you say this, well, then you're automatically against that. Uh, I'm not saying that there's not a discrepancy. I'm saying that there is a separation of powers. And when you allow a judge to decide they're going to take over the budget process, I, I mean, where does it end, right? I mean, we have police safety issues. We have a problem with the police departments. We have a problem with National Guard. We got a problem with, with roads in New Mexico. I mean, what's next? What judge is going to come in and say, you know, we're going to decide that we're going to fix this bridge in this county over that bridge in that county, or we're going to take over the prioritization of, of training the police departments or what we pay police officers. 
it just seems to be a slippery slope. And we talked about this from the beginning. And I see the I see that that lawsuit taking more and more of the of the position of the power from the legislative branch of mm -hmm. creating a budget, funding a budget and putting it in the hand of a single judge in, in, in court. Interesting point there. Let's check out the governor on another situation. Economically, the governor was insistent that New Mexico has made progress towards diversifying its economy despite the pandemic. 2020 was not a lost year in our essential efforts to protect our natural environment and diversify our energy economy. In two years, we've doubled our new renewable resources over the two years before that. New Mexico will be home to the largest single wind complex in the nation. And I expect we will soon rank in the top five in the country for per capita wind energy production. We're driving down energy costs for you and reducing emissions. Property values are rising, and for the second straight year, more people are moving to New Mexico than moving out. Justine, I got a question. Is the governor painting too rosy a picture there, or are we really headed in the right direction, as she says? Well, it's a state of the state speech, right? So she doesn't want to talk about the bottom falling out of the budget, moratorium on oil and gas. You got to put a positive spin on it. Um, and she's she's found she's found one, I guess. But I but I don't think it's an accurate picture of the economy here. I mean, we've all been reading the reports that ten times the number of kids are are um, in shelters as of this time last year. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is drive downtown Albuquerque and see the parks are full of families and full of people. So people are falling off the bottom and that needs to be addressed and our government needs to be realistic and, and honest about how hard this pandemic has been on so many working people, mm -hmm. um, so many people. So I understand, I, I think it's a little tone deaf right now to talk about renewable energy and we're pushing forward and we're gonna have a new wind, you know, push on wind energy when um, it may be a priority and, and she certainly stuck to that from, um, you know, from the beginning of her administration. But we have very serious issues just getting, you know, food on people's plates right mm -hmm. now, mm -hmm. and and very serious concerns about, you know, what's going to happen to oil and gas in this state. Well, um, that leads me to a yeah. That leads me to a point. Sorry to cut you off there, Justine. My fault. Uh, Senator Griego, we the big news, of course, the last 10 days was new now President Biden's moratorium on new oil and gas leasing. Uh, this has impacts for New Mexico. Can the governor get to where she wants to get literally with this moratorium in place? Or if it just if we take a hit on oil and gas here in our state? Well, I think there was that great piece that we shared in that capital and main uh, piece about the, you know this resource curse that a lot of countries go through where you heavily heavily dependent on natural resource you know fossil fuels and what that does to your mm -hmm. economy your ability to do the things that i think justine was talking about invest in the short term it, it sort of fuels a lot of the social spending as a lot of developing countries do but in the long term it just doesn't work right so you don't have a diverse economy you don't invest in the kind of human capital that needs to to to, to develop a long-term competitive economy so uh, i think I think it's it's really kind of a wake up call that we have every time we've had the opportunity to take some of the returns from the oil and gas industry and really double down on wind or solar. Um, we haven't over the last 20 years. And, and all of those who fought that, I think, um, I think have some culpability. Right. So, uh, you know, Obama's new book talked about how much he got beat up uh, 
when he on the whole cylinder scandal, right? Trying to really invest in this transition, and it's politically it's it's dangerous because people want to cling to this the, the the current cash cow, right? The golden goose. But right. at the end of the day, you have to do it. And I think Biden is Biden is sort of forcing that decision now, and I think it is going to be hard for New Mexicans who are so dependent on this industry, and we're going to have to find. But I do agree, uh, Gene, that it has to be more than renewable energy jobs. It has to be some other industries that, that are local and uh, that, that people can feel like they have a place to land if they're, mm -hmm. they've are they been making their livelihood anywhere near the oil and gas industry. That's a good point there. Senator Feldman, do pick up on that. We've got about, about a minute left. Can, uh, we, can, we, can, we, can the governor get to her goals of being you know fossil free without using the fossil fuel industry to get there, so to speak? It's the ultimate you know, dilemma. Well, I think that she's trying to use this crisis as a turning point and change the narrative mm -hmm. away from boom and bust uh, into a different kind of economic development that's not just alternative energies, but she also highlighted outdoor recreation. She also mentioned cannabis legalization, which is a source of revenue. Um, and she also uh, mentioned uh, you know, Netflix and high tech kind of um, kind of enterprises. And I think the big news for me was um, the uh, emphasis on uh, broadband, uh -huh, uh, yeah. asking for a uh, $200,000 million investment in broadband and asking each legislator to devote one half of their capital outlay to mm -hmm. broadband expansion, which is really the key to economic development, especially in rural areas. Senator, your timing is impeccable. Let's listen for the governor's take on broadband and that ask that Dee Dee Feldman just mentioned. At the same time, we will learn from the last year what was taken from us and what was exposed. The pandemic has reminded us that New Mexico cannot wait any longer to invest in reliable, high-speed internet for all in our state. I call on the legislature to commit at least half of their capital outlay allocations to new broadband investments, some $200 million. This is the most urgently needed infrastructure investment we can make as a state, and we must make it. Together, we must put in place this essential building block and avow our unequivocal faith in New Mexico's economic future. Hey, Daniel Foley, 200 million, that's a big chunk of change around these parts. The governor, though, she pushed it to lawmakers, saying they should commit half their capital, as you heard, to broadband. Is she punting, or does that make sense, that everybody sort of shares equally? Yeah, I mean, you know, they've, they've tried to change the way capital outlay is done, but when we were there, it was always divided a third, a third, and a third, right? Mm -hmm. The governor got a third, the Senate got a third, and the House got a third. Um, and I, you know, I, I'll, I'll defer to my colleagues as well. I know that, you know, it doesn't matter what party the governor was from when she, when they came sniffing around legislators, capital outlay, it was one way to unify the legislature to tell the governor it's time to move on and do something else. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, I think, you know, do we have a broadband issue? It's not just rural New Mexico, right? I mean, we got problems even sure. right here in Albuquerque and Rio Rancho, mm -hmm. but you know, I think this is a good example of kind of the consistent theme that we've had a problem with in New Mexico, whether it's talking about, you know, renewable energy. Look, there's no doubt that we have a beautiful state. Now with telecommuting, more people are looking at moving to places like this. It's clear we have a ton of wind, we get sun, you know, but 
The problem isn't do we have these resources? The problem is we don't have the infrastructure to do anything with these resources, right? I mean, we have very little capability to get, we can build all the wind turbines we want. We have very little capacity to get that energy to the market. Right. Same with solar, right? I mean, we, and it's the same with broadband. I mean, we're going to come up with this $200 million plan and we got places in this state that don't have running water. We got mm -hmm. places in the state that have no electricity whatsoever. And so, let, let me get back. Let me get back to that question, though, about her ask, and let me ask Justine as well. You know, this idea of asking legislators to give up half their capital outlay—how does that land? I'm just—I've never been one. You guys have been are the elected folk. I, I just, I'm, in my imaginings, I'm thinking it just must be a clunk of some sort to be asked this. Just maybe that's just me. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think if it's for the right ask, the, mm -hmm. the process has evolved, as Dan says. You know, I think people look at it a little bit differently. And if she can mobilize support, if it's something that has enough public support, you know, maybe maybe she can get there. I'm not sure this is this is the thing, but they're looking out there at all these these kids who can't participate in their remote education and, and I guess making the judgment that maybe this is the issue that gets them there. And capital outlay reform has been a long time coming. So maybe she can get it done this year i, I think it's it's is, is 200 hard is, issue. is 200 million justine enough in your view your personal back of the envelope no, i have no idea yeah. um you yeah. know and i haven't seen their their calculations probably not um almost almost certainly not but i i'm not educated enough on it to know what what it, the systems were really cost that's the other problem is you take a big bite and you're really obligating yourself for you know how many more years what is upkeep what does a full rollout really cost? Right. Good points there. Hey, Eric Riego, another thing that she did not mention, meaning our governor, overturning the law that criminalizes abortion for doctors performing that procedure. Now, strategy there, or is that a foregone conclusion that the legislature is going to repeal this law anyway? Why even bring it up? Well, it's got a ton of momentum. As you know, a lot of the folks who got elected um, in both the House and the Senate, you know, that was a key issue in the race. Um, so, um, and I know she's squarely and strongly behind it. It looks like it has momentum. Um, I am a little surprised she didn't mention it, but maybe I think the focus of her her speech was really, you know, around around COVID and around the economy. She stayed pretty much on message to talk mm -hmm. pretty narrowly about that. She talked about a couple of other issues, a little bit of healthcare, but really it was co all COVID, all jobs, all economy. And I think uh, any of these other more sort of controversial issues, I think, didn't really make it in. And um, I don't know if that was just an oversight or, or, or strategic, but um, maybe it is a foregone conclusion that it's that it's got a lot of momentum in the in the in the Senate and the House. Mm -hmm. I got just got a couple seconds left. Eric, let me stay with you. I got all legislators here. How did that state of the state hit you just in a general? I mean, 26 minutes. It seemed like it was over before it started. It was I've never seen something so short. How did that strike you having such brevity? I thought it was great, short and sweet, because mm -hmm. usually those things are painful, all the applause, <laughs> and, oh my gosh, so uh, it was nice to see her be so focused, and um, you know, there's some things I wish uh, would have been in there, but I think um, there were a lot of highlights, and it was clear that she was trying to balance this idea of, we've got to really double down on on making it through the through the pandemic, but also all of the aid that's going to go to small businesses and, and businesses of all sizes, and trying to like sort of balance those two things, which I think is where this is and you know a couple of surprise announcements around schools for example mm -hmm. i think um but it was a pretty focused speech you know it's pretty pretty narrow in scope mm -hmm. dd do you have a sense of that we got about 30 seconds how did you how did that strike you the the brevity of the speech is, is that a model for later <laughs> maybe i hope so 
I really hope so. Right. <laughs> I, you know, I think usually there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of chaff that can be cut out of a, st a state of the state speech, and she said she set a tone. Uh, tone was one of healing, mm -hmm. uh, one of sympathy, and also one of hope. As I said earlier, I think she was trying to change the narrative and to try to pivot into into a more hopeful future while acknowledging how very difficult it has been. Mm -hmm. Good point. Ending point there. Time for a break. We're back to talk COVID-19 vaccine efforts here and across the country when we return. Going to stick with the line panel now and a little bit more from the State of the State Address, plus some additional information coming in. Uh, we're talking about the vaccination rollouts in New Mexico. What a topsy-turvy ride that is. Of course, the state is reliant on the federal government to get us vaccines. And we got word after the taping, actually Friday morning, that um, there aren't enough vaccines to uh, keep the UNM pit open as a vaccination site, as everyone had hoped. Uh, they've been doing that for a week or two now, and they said they're going to put a pause on that next week, in part because of those who are needing to come back for their second dose. That's starting to kick in, and they just felt like until they had more uh, vaccine ready to go, they needed to put a pause on that. Uh, they've been doing about 1,650 doses a day on average, a UNM health official said. Uh, they had been hoping from the outset their goal was 3,000 a day. But again, all this relying on the vaccine that's coming into the state. So the pit is not done as a vaccination, a mass vaccination site, as it had been dubbed. But it will be on pause at least through next week. We'll get more on that next week. In addition, you had vaccination clinics scheduled for educators in Las Cruces and Rio Rancho, for example, that the Department of Health had to cancel. I called it internal snafu and scheduling problems, uh, but uh, it's this is a very tricky and fast-moving situation, and we wanted to uh, get the line's folks' thoughts about how it's going and what more maybe we can be doing here to smooth this out a little bit. So here now back to the line opinion table and Gene Grant. New Mexico's pandemic response leaders this week backed off the timeline for vaccination, saying it will likely take months to get everyone who is older or has an underlying condition to get their two shots. Months. Even as President Biden promised more vaccine for the country, local rollout has hit stumbling block after stumbling block. The governor has been a cheerleader for distancing and masking and hand washing, as you know. Let's take another look back at the state of the state and see what she had to say. The leadership our state has shown in fighting COVID-19 is the exact same leadership that will get us back on track. New Mexico was the first state in the country to establish a drive-through testing site. We have remained steadily in the top 10 nationally for COVID testing per capita. We mobilized a tribal response and assistance plan that was a model for other states. We're using cutting edge science to test wastewater samples to prevent outbreaks at correctional and juvenile justice facilities. We will continue to rapidly, safely, and equitably distribute vaccines to every corner of our state. We told the truth about the pandemic, even when it wasn't what some of us wanted to hear. We protected our hospitals and healthcare resources. We got more than 26 million meals to school kids all across New Mexico. Doctors, nurses, caregivers, first responders, 
daycare workers, grocery store workers, correctional officers, and so many more have all shown up for their state with courage, dedication, and grace. We stepped up, all of us, as New Mexicans who love our state and look out for our neighbors. Hey guys, on one hand, numbers are back down and the feared holiday spike wasn't huge, thank goodness. On the other hand, we have line jumping to get vaccines, a significant number of people who still feel masks are either unhelpful or are infringing on their personal freedom. Justine, are we really doing the neighborly thing here? Is the governor doing the neighborly thing? Yeah, and, uh, and through extension, people, all of us. Mm -hmm. Well, I think people are really doing their best for the most part. And with one major caveat, I would say that I think the administration has handled a very difficult, complex uh, problem with lots of logistical nuances very well. I, the treatment of incarcerated populations and the disregard for people who are in custody and not more than disregard, actually housing sex offenders together in a, a basically a, a leper colony of, of COVID. I mean, I, I could go on. That, that, that to me is, is the exception. But in, in general, I think the administration has done well communicating, dealing with all these bureaucracies, getting the vaccine in, dealing with distribution, dealing with all these pharmacies and all the red tape mm -hmm. and, and a, the difficulties of a two-shot um, vaccine and, and so I, you know, I commend them for that. And, and, you know, the public is just trying their best to keep going. I've said before, I think, you know, community leaders in some cases can do a better job of modeling, you know, safe behavior. And I mean, that's always true, but yeah. people are trying to muddle through. Yeah, that's a good point. Senator Feldman, what are you seeing out there I, concerning logistics, local logistics? What concerns you? Well, I think that uh, New Mexico is doing a good job. Mm -hmm. uh, we're the third best in terms of getting shots into arms. And just this past week, we uh, vaccinated, I think it was something like 64,000 people. That's pretty fast. Having said that, though, uh, I think there needs to be a better job done with communications in terms of explaining exactly these phases, 1A, 1B. Right. It's a particularly frustrating time now uh, because we're in a 1B and of course as we discussed earlier there are some healthcare workers even that didn't take the vaccination um, in 1A mm -hmm. and so now they're 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 seeing that it works and it's fine so they're coming on and 1B you know which is people over 75 and uh, people over 16 who have who have health, underlying health issues that's a big group in New Mexico. One of our big problems in New Mexico is the um, uh, incidence of chronic diseases like asthma, high blood pressure, uh, cardiovascular disease, diabetes. And so that phase 1B is gonna take a lot longer than expected. And that frustrates, for example, teachers and other essential workers. Mm -hmm. So that needs to be communicated better um, I don't think there's a whole lot of line cutting. I think people are being respectful and the state is being as nimble as it can be, given the fact that these vac vaccines have to be refrigerated, there are two doses, there are all kinds of logistical hurdles. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking about 700 to 800,000 people in that category you just sort of rattled off there just to get 
let folks know this is a huge challenge. Uh, Daniel, interesting point here. The Biden team says they found a mess in terms of vaccine delivery. You know, no, no surprise there. When you look at the federal government in their partnership on this, what, what's your sense of how they're doing? Is it transparent enough? Are they being fair to the states enough? Are they letting the public know what to expect enough? What, what's, what's your gut telling you? I think there's zero confidence from the average American in state, local, or federal government when it comes to dealing with this pandemic. I think, uh, <clears throat> you know, I I think, you know, I, listen, I've said, you know, I, I agree with Justine. I think the governor's done as good of a job as she can do with the information that she has. But I think they're not going to be judged per se on the deaths. I think they're going to be judged on how they handled the dissemination of information. And I just think it's been from the top down and the bottom up, it's just been completely confused. I mean, just listen to the DD, the 1A and the 1B and the, I, I, my brain was shutting down. I can't imagine what the average person out there, I just know that, you know, we hear about how easy it is to get a test. I had COVID, my son had COVID, we had to get the family tested. You know, we had, you know, my wife signed up for a test, got a rapid test, found out later that day. The same day my daughter and I went to get tested and it took four days for us to get an answer. Hmm. Um, you know, I know that we've had people in my family try to get in to get a test and it's taken a week. Other people in my family have taken five minutes. I mean, literally. So I just I think the whole I think what we what we've witnessed here is, you know, um, you know, listening to the former mayor and Obama chief of staff who says never let a crisis go to waste. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that this whole situation has been politicized from the start by everybody. By I'm not blaming Democrats only, by everybody. But I think the average New Mexican is just, they're overwhelmed. It would be interesting. Uh, I was amazed because I would have thought early on when they ran that poll that 70% of the New Mexicans were supporting the governor handling of the pandemic mm -hmm. at the journal poll. Um, it'd be interesting to see what that number is today. Uh, I, I would think that number is going to be there's going to be a massive movement, I would think, from that 70 percent number. And I think that's why, you know, mm -hmm. getting all this information out about here's what we're doing. I think they know that that number's moved. And that's why there's a lot of talk about addressing COVID, handling COVID, getting out shots, getting people back to school. Mm -hmm. That's why. Senator. Good point there. Hey, Eric, and um, Senator Grego, sorry. I know you know the name Tim Manning. He used to run our Homeland Security department here under Governor Richardson. He is now uh, in charge of supply line strategy for the president. It's very, very interesting. <laughs> are we going to get an inside track here? Are we going to get a little something from a, having a New Mexican in that place? Um, I mean, I'm sort of half joking. We have a direct line into the administration. What's your sense of that? Well, I think that was the, 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 the consolation prize for not for the governor not getting in the cabinet. I think she she did a good job of like, I think, trying to get some good New Mexicans into the mm -hmm. into the the administration. I hopefully that'll that'll benefit us. You know, I, I just want to just uh, add to something that, that Dan said in your question. You know, I think this is like a textbook failure of a of an important role for the federal government that happened, you know, to, to say that Biden should turn on a dime and have this strategy and, and solve all these problems when when there was no strategy. And uh, it was, you know, this is going to be taught in political science classes for the next generation about the utter failure of our, mm -hmm. of, our of our federalist system. The federal government just absolutely you know, uh, neg being neglected uh, of their role. Um, so I actually agree with everyone who said that the governor and the state has done a, a pretty good job of, and my, I had a different experience than you, Dan. I mean, I, I got reg I got on the site 
I'm not eligible yet for for a for a shot for a vaccine. Um, I had testing done a couple of times. It was quick. It was drive through. It was very um, very precise. And so I feel like I feel like we're doing as good a job as we could, con- considering the the neglect from the from having a federal strategy and something as as important as this. So hopefully, not just Manning, but other folks who are in, in these important positions uh, will demonstrate how important it is to have competent people mm-hmm. in our federal government. It really is important to not just beat up on them, but actually to have people who can get the job done. Uh, when you have something as important as a crisis like this. I appreciate you elevating that point to that place. Really appreciate that. Now we're back in a moment to talk lawmakers availing themselves of pandemic aid, whether they voted for it or not. Nothing about this year's legislative session is normal. Uh, We've talked about it a lot. One of the big implications or changes because the roundhouse is closed, that means those paid lobbyists who uh, corral and, and walk through the halls of the roundhouse on a regular basis, basis in a regular session, can't uh, directly access those lawmakers in the way they're used to, face-to-face. And uh, there was a great article in the New Mexico In-Depth. We encourage you to go and to read that by uh, fellow Brian Metzger about exactly how lobbyists are dealing with those changes. And in relation to that, uh, how their access has changed as compared to the public. Uh, their access has always been uh, open when, this, when the roundhouse is open, as it is for the public, but the lobbyists are paid to be there day in and day out and be able to bend the ear of lawmakers on issues. And uh, so they're, uh, they have the connections, but now they're having to look to things like email and phone calls to get their messages out to lawmakers. And the article also points out how these changes, these adaptations may pave the way for long sought after by some lawmakers reform around exactly what lobbyists need to report. Uh, this is a big transparency issue in terms of what bills they're lobbying on, how much money is spent by industry on particular pieces of legislation. Uh, and so we're bound to hear more about that in the legislative session. And so we wanted to dive into that article a little more. Senior producer Matt Grubb sits down with that fellow, the reporter Brian Metzger. This is also this segment brought to you as part of our Your NM Government project. So we're proud to bring it to you. Hope it uh, is informative and look for a lot more on the lobbying reform efforts as the session carries on. Brian Metzger is a reporting fellow with New Mexico In-Depth. And Brian, recently you looked at the role of lobbyists in the legislature. That's an interesting topic, no matter when you take a look at it. But right now at the pandemic, it's kind of a different story. What did you find about how things are working at the Roundhouse, both for lobbyists and for some of the uh, citizen lawmakers and staff who rely on them? Well, thank you very much, Matt, for having me. Um, What I found over the course of my reporting, um, obviously we know that the legislature is in sort of a mostly online format, right? I mean, the Senate is in sort of a hybrid format. The House is going to be basically entirely online. And what that means for both legislators and lobbyists is overall a disruption to the way that business is usually done. Um, For lobbyists in particular, you know, one way in which they're able to pursue their agendas for their clients is by meeting lawmakers face-to-face in the hallways or on the roundhouse floor. And so because that's not a factor this year, obviously lobbyists are not allowed in the building. Many legislators are actually at home. Um, It's 
you know, lobbyists have told me that they are just going to do their best to rely on electronic communication. So if it's a short message, maybe they'll send a text or give a quick call. If there is some sort of longer um, message that needs to be delivered, maybe they'll send an email. Um, but overall, it's, it's an environment that is certainly difficult um, from a lobbyist perspective and frankly, from a lawmaker's perspective. I mean, everyone that I've talked to has you know, expressed some measure of displeasure with the situation. Um, one legislator legislator told me that you know the amount of informational materials that she's getting are way higher than usual um, because of the electronic format, and that you know she's getting constant invites to Zoom meetings, as I'm sure many of us are these days. Um, but that you know because everything is online um, the volume of work has actually increased to a certain degree and so all these different factors um, are, are contributing to a session that's obviously much different than what usually takes place certainly i'm sure people are are much less likely to edit what they send um, which means that you're getting more things and in the things that you're getting there's more content um, let's dig in a little bit more to how lawmakers rely on lobbyists. Um, as a lot of people know, we have a citizen legislature. They don't get paid, but perhaps more important than that, they don't have professional staff around the year. Um, what did you find about how lobbyists step in there? And then maybe we can get into a little bit about whether or not that's sort of a, a healthy dynamic, the advantages and disadvantages. Certainly. Um, yes. So because New Mexico has a citizen legislature, um, you know, it's, it's really, we have the distinction of being the one state in the union that does not compensate legislators, um, does not pay them a salary. Uh, legislators do receive a per diem of, um, I think somewhere on the order of $160, $180 a day. Um, but really that's not enough to make a living. And so because of that, and because of the fact that there's no professional staff, um, legislators often have to turn to lobbyists, um, many of which are well-paid and have the resources at their disposal to present information to legislators in a way such that, you know, legislators, like I mentioned earlier, are sort of under a deluge of different information, right? And if you couple that with all the expenditures that are made to legislators, at least in normal years, you know, for meals, gifts, and of course, political contributions, um, what that leads to is a kind of power imbalance where legislators themselves without the staff and sort of an in-house, um, if you will, way of formulating policy often have to turn to lobbyists um, to help them sort of learn the facts on a different issue and, and ultimately to uh, decide how to vote. That's not to say that legislators are completely controlled by lobbyists or anything like that, but that, you know, one legislator that I talked to um, spoke about how she often speaks to lobbyists and then will ask, you know, well, who's on the opposite side of this issue? Who else can I talk to on this? And, you know, that's all well and good about, you know, talking to lobbyists on the other side of an issue. But if you zoom out a little bit, you know, you still have this issue where lobbyists are often kind of setting the agenda um, by being the key source of information. That creates, yeah, a, a dynamic where they're sort of framing the issue as well as as well as bringing it up. You're talking to us from Washington, D.C. 
where things work a lot differently in that dynamic. I know this wasn't part of the article, but um, DC and Congress, there's full-time staff, there's committee staff, um, there are certainly lobbyists, but it's a different system, it sounds like. Yes, no, definitely. I mean, it's, it's really, I think this is something that's quite overlooked actually about New Mexico's legislature is that, you know, these people are not compensated. They aren't, I mean, it's not a full-time job in, in you know, in, in the, it's not a full-time job anyway. And so what that leads to is just legislators not having nearly as much time to think about the issues and not having the same support that legislators certainly in Washington have. So without this in-person back and forth, are we at risk of passing laws that are full of loopholes or um, are directly related to a special interest because someone else who maybe isn't a professional lobbyist, and you sort of talked about the tiers of lobbyists, but um, there's something like 500 lobbyists and um, the minority of them are really kind of the pros. Um, how does this all work together in terms of what we see coming out the other end? Well, I think it's a little bit early to say, but I think that you're getting at something that definitely came up in my reporting for this story, which was the fact that, you know, at least one of the lobbyists that I spoke to wasn't that concerned about the virtual nature of the session because he already knew all the legislators, he had relationships with them, um, he had most of their phone numbers. And so, you know, switching from in-person interaction to having to text and call people wasn't going to be that big of a deal for him. But when you're speaking about the general public, you know, one, you know, kind of the flip side of the fact that lobbyists have a lot of um, access at the roundhouse is that the public also has a lot of access to the roundhouse. And, you know, I think it, like I said, it remains to be seen because, you know, we have committee meetings going on now and we have sort of videos of the floor sessions happening um, where at least the public is able to observe what's going on. But I think it's an open question as to whether there is an increased participation, right? There's sort of a difference between just being able to observe what's going on versus being able to provide input. And certainly lobbyists, um, the ones that have been working there for a long time and have those relationships in place already are going to have an easier time um, you know, pursuing their agendas than regular old citizens. So sure. I think it's, it's certainly a, a concerning dynamic, but um, it might be a little bit too early to draw from conclusions from it. Absolutely, but you make a great point that um, if I'm a pro, I have that access built in. If I'm representing my local outdoors group or my school board, I don't have that know-how necessarily, or even the phone numbers really to, to know the ones to call where you'll actually get an answer. Um, we just have about uh, a couple minutes left here, but I wanted to talk a little bit about an issue that's been kicking around for a while, which is disclosure um, from lobbyists of what they're spending. Um, some advocates would like to see also what they're being paid, what issues they're lobbying, that sort of thing. Yes, as you talked about, um, Senator Steinborn, um, who's kind of the big champion when it comes to disclosure measures here, um, is going to be proposing two bills this year. One is sort of offering greater specificity on lobbyist reporting, um, you know, looking at which specific bills are being lobbied on. And, you know, that's helpful in particular for, 
you know, individuals like myself, journalists, but also activists, people who are highly engaged and just members of the public to actually get a sense of which particular pieces of legislation are being targeted by lobbyists. Because in the status quo, um, we don't have that information, right? I mean, you might see expenditure reports where a lobbyist might list that, you know, they were discussing issues <laughs> with a legislator, but that's, that's what lobbying is. That doesn't tell us anything about the specifics. And so that would be a huge step forward, I think, in terms of um, allowing the public to sort of peel back the curtain, if you will, and see what different special interests are um, seeking to influence in terms of public policy. Uh, the other measure, of course, as you mentioned, is to uh, dis fully disclose all that lobbyist employers are spending on lobbying, including uh, most controversially among lobbyists, especially the salaries of lobbyists. And you know, this is a measure that, um, at least based on the research that I've done, um, exists in a lot of different states, um, you know, sort of irrespective of geography or even political affiliation. I mean, they have these sorts of measures in New York, California, but also states like Tennessee. And, you know, what that really tells us is the degree of investment um, that different interests, um, special interests might have in a particular issue or in a particular piece of legislation. Um, you know, a lot of the reporting that I do, aside from this, is on money and politics. And when you see a particular group, be it, you know, a industry-aligned group, a group like Planned Parenthood, some sort of PAC make a huge investment in a particular race, um, obviously the amount of money that's spent is, you know, interesting and, and worth reporting on its own. But it's also an indication of you know, the level of priority and how important this is to that particular interest. And so I think the idea is to bring that kind of clarity um, to lobbying. Ryan, we're out of time, but we really appreciate your reporting on this. And we know that you're keeping a, an eye on the session. So thanks for joining us. And thank you. want to pause from the show real quick to offer you a little bit of extra here on the show. Uh, this is legislative related as well, but there's a bill in the session this year. It was actually talked about in special session even about uh, changing some of the liquor license rules to allow for some limited delivery of prepackaged liquor items uh, as we continue to uh, suffer through the COVID-19 pandemic. Right now that's not allowed and we know uh, restaurants and um Bars are doing their best to stay afloat during the ongoing pandemic and this ability to deliver cans of beer, uh, bottled uh, liquor, those sorts of things uh, would really help them in those efforts. So we're going to find out a little bit more about what the bill is and uh, talk about its prospects in the legislature. We actually did that earlier today on Friday in a Facebook Live. Uh, our host, Gene Grant, he talked over Zoom to Justin Green of Dashing, Dashing Drivers, uh, which is a delivery company based out of Santa Fe. Also, Matt Canicott, who is a lobbyist on behalf of bars and venues and other things. Uh, both of them obviously see lots of potential in this, and so we wanted to get more of their perspective, and we wanted to bring that interview to you here as well. So here is that interview from Facebook Live earlier today on Friday about liquor delivery in COVID-19.
And hey guys, welcome. A little bit after noon here, just a couple secs. Uh, it's another Facebook Live. I'm pretty pleased to say this is part of our Your New Mexico Government uh, series that we do at New Mexico PBS and continuing. Uh, we're going to uh, classify this Facebook Live as part of that series. I'm really pretty tickled about that. We're going to be talking to a couple of fellers here about the House Bill 8 from Representative Diane, uh, I'm sorry, Hawkman B. Hill. And she is uh, looking to have the ability to have liquor delivered to your home. I'm sure you might be up on this in the general sense if you've been following the news, but maybe not the details. That's, where, that's what we're going to discuss today. Um, this bill, as you might know, was vetoed by the governor last year. Uh, she mentioned that it, it ran up against the Liquor Control Act. Somehow it doesn't this year. We'll talk about that as well. Uh, but I've got Justin Green with us. He is from the Restaurant Marketing and Delivery Association. He's a board member. He's also in Santa Fe. He's local. Don't, don't, it's a national group, but he's right here in New Mexico. <laughs> An old friend, Matt Kennecott. A lot of folks might recognize Matt, if not for the beard. Uh, he's done a lot of work around <laughs> New Mexico for a long time. And he is working with Matt. Again, give me, I got so many associations going here. Give me the name of your new group again. If you no, no worries. I'm working with the Bar, Nightclub, and Entertainment Venue Association. There's a mashup between those two groups. I love Big it right time. there. Absolutely. <laughs> well, welcome to you both. I really appreciate your time here as we try to parse some of this out. Uh, Matt, let me start with you. And Justin, yeah. I'll give you the same question here to take a bite at too. I want to back up just a little bit. I'm, I'm not expecting you to have the full Monty on how the Liquor Control Act works. I'm not looking for that, Matt. Mm -hmm. But basically, what is the situation as it stands now when it comes to the idea of delivery, what you know, what's the overall sense of why we're even looking at this at yeah. this point? That's that's a great question, Gene. So, in New Mexico, the 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 bar and nightclub industry in particular it has been severely severely impacted by these COVID-19 shutdowns. Um, our industry was really the first one to shut down and it'll probably be the last one to open back up. Right. Even under green status, we're, we're still not allowed to open. <clears throat> you know, we're, we're talking about an industry that generates roughly $1.2 billion in economic activity in New Mexico each year. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at, at liquor delivery and hopefully a kind of a per drink delivery scheme in New Mexico to help some of our owners generate some revenue. Right now, they don't have any, really any opportunity to generate revenue because their doors are closed. Right. We do have some places like Sister Bar that, that serve excellent food, very excellent food, but, but most bars around New Mexico just don't have that and they don't have that ability. So it's an in, income and, and revenue generator for, for our members. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, hold on, just to, Justin, for one more quick sec. I need to talk. We need to talk, of course, about the cost of licenses and how it works now, compared <laughs> to what we're going to get into in a little bit. So, uh, Matt, if I can get you to do that too, what's the situation now? Because there's a lot of, I wouldn't say information, a lot of folklore sort of floating out there about liquor licenses and how this works. Yeah, <laughs> there's a there's a lot of folklore. Um, you know, to, so to be quite frank, the way this bill is set up, um, we we don't support the the licensing scheme or or the bill, quite frankly, at this point, mm -hmm. because it'll it'll really uh, devastate the the industry in New Mexico. Um, most people who own own licenses now will likely end up adding the dispenser portion of the license back in mm -hmm. if the legislation passes, and that'll end up saturating the market market and sharply, sharply redu reducing the price and value of the current licenses. Right. And the, the way the system is set up now, 
<clears throat> and I, I'd have to look this up, but I believe there are court cases establishing this. Uh, but liquor licenses in New Mexico are basically property. Yes. So anytime property is taken, that that owner then needs to be compensated by the person or the entity taking that property. There's no scheme in this bill, in this legislation for, uh, for compensating owners. And mm -hmm. there's nothing there to, uh, to really backstop uh, what, uh, what the investments have been of these, these current owners. So that's a, that's a giant issue at this point. Mm -hmm. And something that, that we as an association can't, can't stand behind because it'll end up impacting a lot of our owners. I actually know of owners who have used their licenses as collateral on loans. So, I mean, that there's a huge economic impact right there alone. Well said. You know, it's interesting for the folks at home. Um, you, I'm sure you know if you've lived here for some time that liquor licenses as it stands now is a very expensive enterprise. Anywhere from, you know, six figure, deep six figures to what's going to be approaching a million dollars per license. And what's happened is because of that scheme... I think unbeknownst to a lot of folks out there, the license holders in our state because of the cost are people like CVS, Walgreens, Costco, Alsup's, Total Wine. I mean, it's an, it's about a hundred, Alsup's and Total Wine own about 120 mm -hmm. of these 1,400 plus licenses that are out there. And I wanted <coughs> to get that in there uh, uh, before, we, before we get going with you, Justin, because I, again, the context is important. This idea of having a liquor license for $3,000 as, as it's in the bill versus 300,000 potentially. Let's talk about it from your end of the world. Are you, are you in your group excited for the bill? If, you, if so, why? So we, uh, we like the bill uh, in its form. We've advocated for a bill. We were helped champion the bill two years ago that was vetoed and another bill six years ago that was vetoed by Governor Martinez. So this is our third time around. Third time might be a charm. Um, and this is a priority for the governor's office this time. So uh, that was that sort of gives you a path, hopefully, to getting a good bill and a signature on the fourth floor. Uh, this bill is uh, partially an economic development and a support bill for the restaurant industry that we can uh, provide this added increment of sales to restaurants that are, uh, you know, focused on takeout and uh, and delivery at this point. And if they were able to add a bottle of wine or two or a six pack or two or a growler or two mm -hmm. would allow people to safely stay home. Uh, the governor has a mandate to stay home as much as possible. Restaurant dining rooms are closed and a bottle of wine is a nice complimentary thing. And, and restaurants that have this, this ability already on premise can extend this off premise. Uh, the bill also has uh, the ability for a third party to do this uh, because we, uh, I own a restaurant delivery service in Santa Fe. We're a good example of how we help market for our restaurants and do it with best practices, with employee drivers, and there's a bunch of restrictions in the bill mm -hmm. to make sure that the safety for intoxicated persons and for minors are covered in, uh, in how liquor is, uh, or alcohol, sorry, beer and wine is distributed. The uh, for delivery, mm -hmm. the bill does not allow liquor. So that was one of so liquor is uh, is hard liquor by definition. So uh, that is uh, this is beer and wine in very very limited quantities, and it would require food to go along with it. It's, so it's really carved out for uh, for food establishments to extend their uh, reach to the home. Mm -hmm. 
quickly just add a little of that as I'm reading it here, the legislation will allow restaurants, grocery stores, liquor stores, craft distillers, small brewers and bars to offer that home delivery, as you mentioned, uh, and that food big, as uh, Matt mentioned, would be $25. Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting when I think about this on a, on a practical basis, let's go back, um, Justin, a quick sec to the idea of a third party group. Let me lead, read the, to the folks some language from the bill itself regarding that. Um, a third party alcohol delivery licensee shall be independently liable for the delivery of alcohol beverages to an intoxicated person or to a minor for any violation of the Liquor Control Act and be subject to suspension, revocation, or administrative fine pursuant to a certain section. Um, it seems like a lot of the liability is on the delivery folks here, as opposed to the folks on the restaurant or, or, or the folks making the deal. Do I have that right? Am I, am I reading that into that correctly? Yes, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, our industry uh, has to gear up for that and to make sure that we have trained and qualified people and obtain the, the correct uh, insurance and policies and training to make sure it doesn't happen and, uh, you know, and do that. So yes, that is very specifically spelled out in the bill mm -hmm. that it, uh, the liability cannot be uh, shielded. It's a, there's no shielding of the, of the sales. And there's a little complication in that in the sense that the sale is actually being made by the restaurant. So, you know, you show, if we show up at a, uh, at a doorstep and somebody's can't pro provide an ID or, uh, or, or looks intoxicated and we shouldn't, um, you know, leave the, uh, leave, you know, transfer the, uh, the, the alcohol, we need to restock it and bring it back and have some mechanism to safely do that. And there's, some complications in the bill that have that, but I'm sure that in rulemaking, hopefully AGD will figure that out and and uh, deal with that properly. Yeah. It's, it's, that's, I, I can see the details that need to be uh, kind of dealt with there. Matt, interesting, another part of the uh, bill that has to do with delivery, a person, company, or licensee that wishes to deliver retail sales of alcohol in New Mexico on behalf of valid retailers, dispensers, craft distillers, wine growers, small brewers, or restaurant licensees, that also hold a valid alcohol beverage delivery permit shall obtain a third party alcohol delivery license from the department. So basically these folks are going to be vetted, licensed. I mean, this is a, 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 a not just a, you know, show up and you've got a job. You have to, you have to really show something here, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. that, you know, one of the things that I think we, we take incredibly seriously in New Mexico <clears throat> is the training of our, our alcohol servers. Right. Uh, as we all know, we've, we've got a, a large DWI pro, uh, problem in New Mexico and a large domestic violence problem in New Mexico. And having the servers, and in, in, in this case, the delivery drivers trained and licensed on what to look for, how to spot somebody who's been overserved, et cetera, um, that'll go a long ways towards helping prevent some of these problems. Um, we're, we're very much in support of those types of provisions that uh, allow for, for more training and more recognition of, of what to look for mm -hmm. with somebody that's been overserved. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they have to be 21. They have to have a valid license, all that, you know, that usual stuff. But there, is there something beyond that, uh, Justin, you've discovered in your business? What makes a good delivery person for alcohol? Is it, is it different from Uber Eats and, you know, Grubhub? Is there a different mindset? What, what do you look for for a good employee to do this? 
So we train, so we, we're a slightly different model. We operate a model here in Santa Fe where we are locally owned and we uh, are not using massive amounts of venture capital to sort of support losses in this, uh, in this venture and independent contractors. Mm -hmm. We use employees, we train them, we uh, COVID test, we do best practices. We've made sure that we uh, are up to date in what we need to be for the times, right? Mm -hmm. And so alcohol has certain restrictions and qualifications that we're going to bring our staff through uh, should this bill pass to safely uh, to do this. So Uber can do this. It might not be in their model. And for, you know, all those other guys are out there doing this. Um, and some specialize in alcohol delivery, but I think it's really, uh, aimed at mostly uh, locally owned uh, businesses, uh, whether it's a locally owned liquor store or a locally owned restaurant or a th locally owned third party delivery company. Um, there'll be a lot of opportunities to, uh, to either, you know, provide it for your individual business or as a third party business to bring a staff in that professionally services this and makes it safe. Right. You know, and I have to back up what Matt said a second ago. We're in a new era here in New Mexico. If we had tried to do this a decade ago, I doubt you'd find, well, it wouldn't pass, but I, I doubt you'd find, you know, the ability to sort of set up a home delivery scheme here. But now that we have a world of delivery, I mean, everything's delivery now. It just seems much more palatable for everybody concerned. But there are downsides to everything. Are, are there things, Justin, out there that you're trying to anticipate that might be a problem for some, for, for this idea of delivering at home? So we don't know what the rules are going to be uh, that come out of AGD in the final implementation. Uh, we have some best practices with our company that we have software where we can scan IDs and it reads the barcode, it reads the front picture, it matches the front picture to the picture of the person who it's taking in front of you. And it gives you a percentage of, hey, that looks like the person in the ID and it gives some ID verification. Things like that can be implemented in this bill uh, at rulemaking. And actually, the last bill that we ran two years ago, we very specifically said, use these new technologies mm -hmm. uh, to allow for safer, uh, safer ID checking, uh, verification of, of data afterwards. AGD, this bill requires that all this information be uh, retained for up to three years, which is a little excessive, but it's fine. In the electronic <laughs> world, it's just an electronic file. But... Yeah. Just to check that, you know, you're delivering it to a location. So now with a smartphone, you can see this was done. They pushed the button here at this location where the address was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. It has a picture of the alcohol in the hands of somebody or safely put on a table and a picture of the person at the door. Mm -hmm. um, all the things that need to be sort of compiled to make uh, AGD and SIU um, confident that we're doing, you know, that we're compliant. Uh, I would say that uh, some of the delivery companies that are out there right now are not compliant at all. I actually, about an hour ago, I had a bottle of wine dropped off at my house as a promotional uh, thing dropped on my doorstep. And it is, uh, you know, that is through one of the major common carriers through interstate from another state to New Mexico, just dropped on your doorstep. So we think that we will be much more rigorous in our standards uh, and AGD will be able to enforce this much more with what they come forward with. That's so fascinating. You know, this is going to sound strange, but as an ex-paper boy, <laughs> spend ready to start this. The, I've always, I say this, I used to say this to my kids, all real life happens at the threshold of the front door. It, it's an amazing, it's amazing what happens at the th front door. That's the truth. 
And that moment you just described, Justin, of that verification through tech, you know, because if, if you're, you're a viewer's watching this saying, well, someone's uncle, as used to happen 40 years ago, could call in the order, the delivery guy shows up and just hands it to the underage kid and nobody's none the wiser. If I'm following what you're saying, that's just not going to be able to happen if, if I'm following you correctly. I hope that the rules are made in such a way that, that they allow for some technology to help uh, enforce this and make it easier on our people, right? You know, we're yeah. taking on the liability at a certain, you know, for one single bottle of wine or two six packs. That's a huge amount of liability. We need some sort of technology and safe harbor of, of a minimum standard that we're able to comply with and make sure that we feel good uh, and mm -hmm. everybody feels good about the transaction. Love it. Matt, on the restaurant side of things and the entertainment and venue side of things, I appreciate you bringing up Sister. That's my joint, you know, right down the street here. I love That's that great. place. But you make an excellent point. Not every restaurant set up the way they are. And so do you anticipate, you know, I, I can think in my own mind, if I'm in the business of doing this and I have this opportunity to do this for $3,000 a year, I'm going to find a way, basically. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, the opportunity is just a tremendous. And so this idea that of economic development you, you, you mentioned earlier as well, expand on that. I've had a lot of interesting conversations about the quote unquote neighborhood bar. Yeah. You know, we need to have that happen here in New Mexico to cut down on drunk driving and stuff. Yeah, it, I mean, when when you look at the stats, the the uh, going back to to the domestic violence uh, mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. uh, when you are serving alcohol on premise, <clears throat> the the domestic violence stats are a lot lower for for folks who will go out, enjoy a couple of drinks, and then go home. Right. Where the real DV happens is when people are going out and getting getting packaged, and nobody's really controlling how much they're they're served at a home. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> That's where the that's where the real uh, the real problems happen. Now that aside, uh, the liquor delivery we think is is still a great option because you do have those those trained individuals who will be serving the alcohol to those to those folks who order it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> as far as the neighborhood bars go, you know it's not just a place to go and drink or not just a place to to go and and, and get rowdy. A lot of folks look at their neighborhood bar as a place to socialize, yep. to get their social activity, to come together uh, as a community, and that's that's something that I think uh, a, a lot of folks don't don't necessarily realize during these shutdowns is that's yet another social avenue that's been taken away from from people. Um, the economic development of of areas is is huge where we have neighborhood bars just downtown alone on Central. Um, I, I lived downtown all last year and I saw the difference from prior to shutdown to the end of December mm -hmm. and it was gigantic. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's no nightlife activity down there at all. Um, the homeless situation is, is starting to get out of hand and out of control. Crime is on the rise downtown. Plus we're losing out on, on all of the, all of that money that patrons would, would normally spend. Um, you know, if we can work to find a way to safely open, such as the brewers and the, and the distillers have done in New Mexico, which, by the way, there's not a lot of difference in going to like Marble and sitting on the patio and enjoying a beer as it would be if I went to like FX and sat on a patio there if they were to open one. We, we'd really like the opportunity to be able to, to open back up like that in order to, to generate some generate some revenue and, and really bring some more public safety downtown again. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, well said. I, I, I completely forgot, guys, my fault. At, at the beginning of this, we talked about how the delivery thing works, but I also forgot, Matt, that there were certain places, I can't quite find it here, but that is not going to be uh, deliverable, so to speak. And one of them is college campuses, um, near schools. Mm -hmm. Can anyone tick off the, the, the do not deliver <laughs> places that are in the bill? Uh, Justin, do you have yes. that? Yeah, it's pretty much limited to residential. So okay. it, it kind of carves out hotels as well, even th that they're not allowed to. So it's no schools, no commercial property. Right. Uh, it's really limited to residential and it is limited to one bottle and one six pack. So it is very limited in its in its reach in this. And that's those are some of the details that it, the, for, the previous bill allowed to hotels and the previous bill allowed two six packs or two bottles of uh, of wine um and specifically spoke to uh cider which uh which this bill doesn't have so there's still a little tweaks a few minor tweaks in that um but yes where, where, do, where do growlers fit in there if by volume does that fit inside that six-pack criteria so that is a definition thing so in most communities and i think new mexico considers this too that once a growler is professionally sealed in a restaurant or at a tap room Mm -hmm. uh, that that is sealed so it's not a broken package and that it, a growler fits in the 72 ounce. I think a growler is in the 60 something ounce uh, range. So it fits in there. Gotcha. Well, that's, I'm fascinated by that. I'm a growler guy. I'm, you know, I'm surrounded by places that it, it, the convenience of it is unbelievable. And again, the can, you know, thinking about it. Oh, let me go back to something here real quick. Thank you, Justin, for mentioning commercial buildings. One of the things I, I uh, that's you can't deliver because one of the things I thought about <laughs> Before I realized that you couldn't do it, I thought you could. I had this vision of all these people working, you know, at night in the office, you know, ordering a pizza and then ordering a six pack, you know, to be delivered. Maybe that's something for down the road, but I could see the need to not do that. That would get very, very messy going through buildings and commercial buildings, trying to find, you know, the right guy or woman who ordered the booze and everybody else. Oh, that's me. Yeah, bring it right in here. You know, <laughs> it's crazy though. Uh, so I just wanted to kind of make that clear. Um, going back to delivery, are, Justin, are you concerned that about competition? Because what I'm sensing from what you said a little bit ago uh, is in from a, a reading in the bill, sort of the impl implication here is that this is an interesting business opportunity for fellows and men and women like yourself. Maybe someone in Las Cruces wants to start a deal. Maybe someone in Grants wants to start a delivery deal. Suddenly, this economic development thing starts spilling a little bit wider than just physical locations to, to, to have booze. You know what I mean? Are, are you sensing that as well? Is there an opportunity here for folks? Yes, I, um, I'm in communication with the, uh, the folks that operate uh, in other parts of the state on the Eastern Rim and Hobbs and areas like that and in Las Cruces. And they are in general in favor of this, you know, wanting, you know, potentially in, uh, a two bottle uh, or two six pack uh, limit instead of one, uh, a few little details tweaked here and there, but uh, um, you know, we're encouraged that it's going in the right place and this is a priority of the governor's. So we stand there to help uh, make it as easy to get approved and implemented. We'll work with AGD to help them with, uh, with software implementation and show what our industry standards are because sometimes they come into this and they go, how do you verify this thing? So here are the three software we're, we're to, uh, to help this. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. Uh, Matt, pick up on that if you would, because it seems to me there's an interesting opportunity uh, even in, uh, I'm not sure if there's a difference between the rural parts of our state and the urban parts. 
if I was going to open a, a liquor delivery service, I would actually do it in a rural part of our state. That, that actually makes yeah. more sense to me from a business person's sort of point of view. Uh, so again, the, the, the idea is, is opportunity and economic development and your sense of it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's a ton of economic development opportunity here, uh, whether that's that's for the the delivery businesses themselves, uh, or for locations that want to to offer drinks. And I, I would say we we we'd even be in support of expanding this a little bit further for a buy the drink uh, option. So if I own a bar that does like a, a famous cocktail or something. There, there are ways to be able to seal that that cocktail up and make it make it deliverable. It's done in other states. Texas, for example, is one of those. So, really, the the opportunities are 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 big uh, with with this legislation. If uh, if we can get it to a point where it's where it's open to uh, to anybody who who would like to participate, bars included, um, it's it's something that's a, become a very large industry. Uh, alcohol delivery. And I think it's uh, something that could be very big here in New Mexico as well. Yeah, flush that out a little bit. And, you know, that's a good point there. Since we're sort of stuck here, we, we're not witnessing other delivery stuff going on there. It, how robust is it? Uh, that's that's fascinating to me. You know, I, I personally don't have any numbers off the, the top okay. of my head. Um, but, you know, you're, all of our neighbors are, are doing this now. And a lot of, uh, I think, 36 states in total now are, wow. uh, are doing alcohol and liquor delivery. And they've all seen an, an uptick in, in revenue from the delivery side of things and from the bars and restaurants that are allowed to do it. But mm -hmm. maybe this is something that, that Justin can expand on. Yeah. Any, any sense of harm reduction in those 36 states, by the way? I, so I don't know anything empirical, but I do know that uh, over the years, a lot of the, um, the, the DWI, uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, have all come out with, they, they're worried about certain things. Make sure that you're not serving to underage people when mm -hmm. it arrives at the house, right? Make sure it's a safe environment where you're the person receiving it. But in general, the fact that this is aimed to reduce drunk driving, that's one of the main aims yep. of this thing is like, if you can get a perfect, a fantastic meal from one of Santa Fe's fine restaurants or Las Cruces or Albuquerque or Amarillo uh, or uh, Alamogordo, sorry. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but any of these uh, 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 locations and, and get it delivered with a bottle of wine, stay home, stay safe, especially in COVID times, but even mm -hmm. on a Saturday night, when uh, there's a two hour wait at your favorite restaurant, but boy, those enchiladas would be great with a six pack and we're just gonna sit home and rent a movie and uh, we'll be good. And we didn't drive, we didn't drive to a restaurant and have that margarita or two or three, we could only, we're limited to beer and wine in our residence at a very minimal quantity. So mm -hmm. we think it's a harm reduction. I appreciate that because that's a big concern here, as you know, historically, you know, it's just been rough here for, for anything that has to do with alcohol and driving and anything else. But again, you're saying this is the antithesis of that. This is the complete opposite of that. You don't have to put your key in the ignition. You know, there's a saying here in Albuquerque, wherever you live uh, about walkability, you're, you know, m miles from anything, but by car, you're 15 minutes to everything. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's a very, <laughs> it's a bizarre thing of the West in, in Albuquerque, true. but I think, and I only say that jokingly to say, I think this is the opportunity that our spread outness is the opportunity. People, I, a lot of people don't realize the square miles of Albuquerque alone are huge. This is an mm -hmm. enormous city, you know, square miles wide. And you start to think about the food and liquor deserts that are out, that just 
absolutely overlay our city all over the place, let alone statewide. Uh, this could be quite fascinating. Uh, let me, I'm gonna wrap up here. Um, anything you want the folks to know about? I'm, again, I'm gonna try to catch up with the representative. Uh, I know it's waiting to get in commit another committee hearing. I haven't seen uh, a date for that to happen. So I'm hoping to get uh, uh, some folks to come on. We've got two in the House and two in the Senate sponsoring this, two Republicans and two Democrats. So it has a very interesting feel. It's, it doesn't, it just, and the governor's for it. So it just feels like on its way, but what should folks really take away from this if they wanna support something like this? Justin, I'll start with you. Yeah, so we want it, we want it to be <coughs> built to help local businesses. Uh, you know, the giant chains that we're, uh, that we're sort of fighting with in the day-to-day the -day business of this community, you know, the local bars, the local restaurants, the things that make New Mexico the most special place are things that need to be supported in this time. And this is not a be all end all. This is not a mass amount of alcohol out there, but it'll support small restaurants uh, to do small deliveries of alcohol and uh, with their meals and uh, having, uh, having local players involved and safe practices to make it uh, a reality is what we're going for right now. And there are other parts of this bill that are uh, fantastic and more complicated, but uh, you know, the delivery part we're, uh, we're pretty satisfied with and we think that we can work with. Mm -hmm. it, Matt, interestingly, I just, it just looking down at my notes here, I just realized one of the issues of harm reduction that uh, I came across on a blog was the idea this may be an opportunity to get rid of the singles, the, cla the mm -hmm. classic you know, things that are driving law enforcement, yep. neighborhood associations, everyone completely crazy, I don't want to name any, you know, convenience store <laughs> names. We all saw that dust up two years ago with the mayor's office and the idea of selling, you know, folks who might be watching this who don't know, basically you can buy single mm -hmm. you know, nips as they used to call them years ago, go into a convenience store, buy a soft drink, open the nip in the parking lot, dump it in the soft drink, get behind the wheel. No one's done the wiser that you're drinking alcohol. And this, this has got to stop. I mean, it's just, mm -hmm. there's no other way to say it. It's mm -hmm. got to stop. Do you agree with that, that this might be an opportunity to deal with the, the, the small single alcohol thing? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's, that's a huge revenue driver for some of these convenience stores with liquor licenses. Mm -hmm. And it's very dangerous. I mean, you just walk out with a paper bag and start slamming them back and behind the, behind the wheel of your car and, and nobody would, would really know mm -hmm. until you have some kind of incident. Uh, the, the delivery option of this bill is, is something that uh, you know, once bars are included, we'll be able to work with. Uh, it provides an opportunity for somebody who is trained in what to look for uh, while they're while they're serving. So that that right there itself lends lends itself to to harm reduction. Um, otherwise, you know, I, and I have to reiterate this point: this this legislation, as written with with the licensing scheme that that it has, will end up killing your local bars and, and nightclubs. Um, it'll devalue the liquor licenses that that are either being leased or that are owned by these establishments so much that they'll never be able to recover and they'll they'll never be able to reopen again. So we we have to see some major major changes on the licensing side of this legislation before we we fully support it. Right, go ahead and expand. We didn't talk too much about that because it, it, again, it's that's a lot of the business side of this as opposed to the consumer side. Mm -hmm. But if, you know, we started talking about the price of liquor licenses as they stand now, but I sort of threw out there uh, casually the idea of the $3,000 license. Yeah. Go ahead and expand on that if you would. I, I realized I was aiming to wrap up. <laughs> I don't want to leave that out. Uh, 
how that works, who qualifies, how one gets it, um, how often one needs to, to reissue, mm -hmm. how, how does that whole $3,000 license thing work? So these are what are called uh, interlocal dispenser licenses or, or on-premise licenses. Um, it, first, I want to dispel one rumor or, or falsehood, and that's that brokers and, and other license owners are making millions of dollars from, from leasing these licenses. And that's, that's simply not true. Right. Um, so we, we've actually got 407 current total inter, interlocal dispenser licenses in New Mexico. 73 of those licenses are leased. Of those 73 lease licenses, 27 are bars and eight are, are hotels, which bars and hotels are not, not helped by this, this current legislation. Mm -hmm. um, that leaves 38 that are leased, uh, leased by locally owned restaurants. So that's, that, that's kind of the breakdown of where we currently sit. 334 of those 407 are, are, uh, are actually owned. So there's, there's not a lot of, lot of leasing going on. There's not a lot of, of quote unquote millionaires being created by, by, the, uh, by the leasing. Um, all of that being said, <clears throat> the, way, the way the bill has the, the, the new licenses set out, they would basically be an interlocal dispenser license that a restaurant could get to serve uh, beer, wine, and, uh, and liquor at this point, um, which would basically be the same thing that a bar, uh, that a bar can currently do, but we don't have the opportunity, uh, to, uh, to, to do, to do the delivery under this bill at this point. So that those two things combined would, would, would severely end up harming the industry. Uh, that license as laid out in the legislation is, I think about $3,000 would need to be renewed every year. And just, just like all of the other licenses, um, the, the licenses that our bar and nightclub owners have now, I think the fee is roughly $1,300 per license uh, per year um, with, with each license, plus whatever uh, the cost is to, to either lease the license from a broker or to purchase the full license, which in some cases can be anywhere from $300,000 on up to, I, I think the highest I've heard is like $700,000, somewhere around there. So that, that's kind of how that scheme works. We definitely, definitely need some, some major adjustments. End of the new scheme, how does one move around licenses? Uh, the old way, you know, rural versus urban, you could, you know, dependent on population. There was just like, a, like this kind of weird formula. Um, how, how is that going to be impacted with, with this bill? <laughs> That's a good question, and I, I'm not quite sure how to answer it. So, <laughs> so I, I, I mean, I think that I, I agree with Matt that the uh, bars specifically are kind of squeezed and, and not addressed in this bill in a way. Um, mm -hmm. I think that, you know, a bar is going to probably have to go with a restaurant and find a, you know, whether somebody on premise is going to operate food for the location to then take advantage of that $3,000 license that is uh going to potentially uh, free up like the ability to have that at a local community level. There's the potential to have, I think, 10 bars replace one. And so there's definitely going to be more competition mm -hmm. uh, in these markets. Uh, and there is the risk that if somebody wants to go it as a pure bar or nightclub without food, that they're going to have to have these big mega licenses, right? You know, but uh, by having in some of these small communities, the opportunity to now do two things. Uh, first of all, the people that were running with a full bar license that might've lost their package uh, uh, rights are in this bill, there's a right to buy that back. 
Right. So by buying that back, that will now create basically a, a new package license, which are the more valuable licenses uh, in general. And that license could stay in the community or be portable to a, a bigger market, Las Cruces, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, wherever, that has a need for a package uh, thing. And so that could be a Walmart or a big box store that can afford those prices um, uh, and so on. So I... Uh, it's the bar that is sort of squeezed in the middle, the purest bar that doesn't have food at all. Uh, even if it's just a tamale warmer and nachos, right? You know, just to keep people there. And um, those are, the, that's sort of that line that needs to be addressed here to say, could somebody now qualify for that cheaper, more affordable license and free up this license that would then be something they could sell, maybe not for everything that they were able to sell for a few if they shut down their bar before, but they're getting a little bit on both sides of it. It's not a perfect mix and everybody's gonna have to look at how they, who, who whether they own, whether they lease, whether, you know, how they wanna operate their model and so on. But it's gonna create a little, I would say, for lack of a better term, liquidity in the, uh, in the market, right? With the ability to move them, to regain your package. So those will migrate to package stuff. And then the restaurants and bars will be able to expand and not require a bar license anymore or like a, a dispenser license. Gotcha. Hey, hey, Matt, interesting. I've also seen on a, a couple of the blogs as well, the idea of this, you mentioned earlier, the mitigation of the license holders as it stands now, say someone paid 300 grand for their license 10 years ago, it's now worth $3,001 if this thing passes. Uh, but the idea that, you know, one could get into business, you know, you get a group of people together, get some partners, uh, you know, this opportunity is a very interesting thing when it drives human behavior. And, you know, when you, when you think about alcohol and how important it is, you know, honestly to our state, we, you know, we'd like it, you know, we're just looking for a way to do it that doesn't harm people or harm ourselves. I, I you know, honestly, if we became the 37th state, I could see this thing really taking off. I'm really kind yeah. of amazed by it. But, you know, getting away from my own point here, the idea of how to mitigate the damage for the current license holders I've seen the idea of potentially taxing things to then be able to roll some of that money back to those owners, potentially, if I have that right. Is there something cooking along those lines? Am I, am I grokking that correctly? Yeah, there, there's, there's a couple of schemes that, that, that people are talking about. One is, is just straight cash payments yeah. uh, flowing from, from the state to whoever to, to purchase these licenses is that, back. Is that, is that viable? I got to interrupt you. That, that one's probably not viable be, yeah. because of the anti-donation clause. Ah. Um, there's another scheme that, that's been put forward by some other, other owners uh, where, say, maybe you have like a $300,000 license. Uh, you then can, can uh, sell off what uh, maybe over three years, what would be deemed individual licenses underneath that, that $300,000 license. So whether they sell them for $3,000 or $10,000 or whatever, um, the state would, would say, okay, you have this license. Here's how many other licenses can be created and what you're able to sell, which we definitely would, would be in support of because then that then allows the owners to be able to, to recoup uh, a, a lot of their, a lot of their funding that they put into it. And, you know, we've, we've heard some other schemes too, but that one seems to, to the owners to be the most palatable at this point and something that, that we would definitely, definitely support uh, barring other, other cash payments and that kind of stuff. Sure. I mean, it's got to be dealt with. I mean, there's this, it has this, to be, this is going nowhere unless this gets dealt with, honestly, yeah. you know, that current licensees 
you know, they're not going to be happy, but just right. something that's reasonably palatable yeah. that they can, they can, you know, get a sense of getting their money back or some kind of value. I love the use of the word liquidity, uh, you know, by Justin a second ago, you know, if these guys, uh, you know, George Gundry, uh, who was quoted in the journal, mm-hmm. I've interviewed George, uh, you know, about the situations for COVID. He holds three instances and I can totally see where this man is coming from. Yeah. Suddenly you look yeah. up one day and you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> I didn't ask for this. Yeah. I don't work really hard to get these three you know, licenses. Yeah. The George Gundry's of the world, they must be satisfied. There's just no no way around this. So this bill bill's going nowhere. Well, and le- legally too, you you have to satisfy the the fact that uh, that these liquor licenses in New Mexico are are technically property. Yes. You can't just set up a new licensing scheme that 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 takes the property away from the owner. That mm-hmm. owner has to be uh, duly and rightfully and justifiably compensated for for that taking. Mm-hmm. And if it adds up to millions, Justin, again, this this tax scheme I read. You could make that up, you know, in a, in a number of years, perhaps, if, if, if there, there has to be a scheme like that over some time, it might be a negotiating point there. There's definitely, I think I've heard uh, close to a billion dollars, but if you string it out over 10 to 15 years, I think you might be able to get it. Uh, the concept of multiplying and dividing licenses, that, that came out of a, a task force that was back in 2015, I think, the Liquor Control Task Force. And it, it never came to fruition at, at a legi- at a, in a bill, but it, uh, it was one of these concepts to basically take licenses and say, you know, you get to triple your licenses. So it's sort of it might make more comp- competition on the actual bar to bar level, right? You know, there will be three ah. times as many restaurants and bars with licenses. Right. But that's a, you know, if, if these licenses are what re- are restricting economic development and, and, uh, and a vibrant economy here, then we need to do that to, to get that moving. And that might be the most equitable way to allow for equity owners of, uh, of licenses to, see something out of that but it may create the same problem 10 years from now when somebody got their license and they're like now what so it's uh there should be probably both sides of the thing here's a billion dollars to finance this over 10 years and we're going to triple the licenses and it's going to be this unwinding mechanism to bring us to a new paradigm that allows for the corner bar that is only 2,000 square feet right or maybe only a thousand square feet and only you know, a, a supermarket that is only 5,000 square feet. So you start to have neighborhood grocery stores that right. don't need a million dollar license, but you say, well, I want to get a six pack on my corner, but that license is too expensive for a small grocery store where we like the old bodega, right? You know, but this is New Mexico and the million dollar licenses all end up at the, what we consider convenience stores, which end up being uh, gas stations, right? Yep. And so- yeah, we got to break it. We got to break it. If anything has, if anything happens during this process, we must break this logjam of where, where the licenses cost, the cost of them, the Liquor Control Act. Everything just needs a tweak. It's been forty years, for gosh sake. I appreciate what you guys tried to do six years ago and last year certainly, but it's all a process, isn't it? It really is a process. It's a mm-hmm. political process. It's a cultural process. You can't just jam something down someone's throat and expect it to be accepted. But I'm really excited about this one. So I want to thank again, Justin Green, the Restaurant Marketing and Delivery Association. He's a board member, but he's also in Santa Fe and a business owner of delivering alcohol. He's actually, no, his, his expertise is on the ground. It's not just policy. So we're, Justin, I appreciate your being with us. And of course, Matt Kennecutt from the, the Bar, Nightclub and Entertainment Venue Association recently formed 
to represent those folks in this process. Matt, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. We will end things this week with where we began, and that is the legislature. And uh, one thing that came out this week through some Associated Press reporting, an important story about how several lawmakers actually were able to get COVID relief, uh, pandemic relief funds for their small businesses uh, and how that looks to the public, what that means. Is it appropriate? Is it not appropriate? Uh, which brings up a lot of conversation you're going to hear again about the fact that New Mexico is the last holdout citizen legislature. So when you have a citizen legislature, there are going to be these kinds of conflicts where lawmakers who own businesses are making rules, deciding things about pandemic relief while also applying for some of that relief to uh, help their businesses who are also suffering during during the pandemic. But will this be the thing that uh, really gets folks talking again about changing our model from a citizen legislature. Uh, Who knows? Time will tell there, but this is a great conversation with the line panel, and I'll leave you to it. Here now is host Gene Grant. By the end of last year, New Mexico had paid out nearly $100 million to small businesses and some nonprofits. It's part of the pandemic assistance that was supported by Republicans and Democrats alike. Morgan Lee of the Associated Press looked into who was getting that money, and he found five current or former lawmakers, as well as some interesting other businesses. Now, just before this on the program, we heard about New Mexico's citizen legislature. Does having an unpaid citizen legislature mean we're going to run into sticky ethical issues like this, Dee Dee Feldman? Yes. Indeed. I think Mm -hmm. this is a very good example of that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we do have some laws about that. And, um, of course, our uh, fellow Senator uh, Phil Griego was actually is actually served time for voting on an issue that benefited him financially. Mm -hmm. So I have a real question as to whether um, if if the senators that were mentioned here um, did vote on this bill uh, and then collected um, collected the relief funds, which, you know, 47% of them uh, got the money, 47% of the applicants got the money. So there were a lot of people that didn't get the money right. while these guys did. Is that legal? It may not be legal. Interesting. Senator, uh, Dan, I, th- I see you, your eyes blazing. Did you have a, a quick thought? Look like you want to jump in there. No, I just, I mean, I, I think this is the, you know, the price you pay for having a citizen legislature. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, if their business applied, applied correctly, you know, I think this is typical much to do about nothing. I mean, if, if somebody pulled some strings and got something more than someone else should have gotten, or if it was done by an in- inside deal, that's a problem. But I think if, you know, you fill out the paperwork, I think, you know, you shouldn't get any special treatment being a legislator, but I also don't think it should count against you because you're a legislator and you own a business and you're trying to keep people employed. Mm-hmm. Senator Griego, the current senators who got grants, attorney uh, Joe Cervantes and construction company owner George Munoz, who recused themselves from the vote, as Senator uh, Feldman just mentioned, and Bill Scherer, William Scherer, who voted against the measure. He then used it to get 15000 for his debt collection business. Are these problematic, or, or as Dan says, much ado about nothing? I think recusal is important, right? Um, 
I do think it's, you know, the hypocrisy and some of the folks who really grandstanded on this, right, on this issue and, and mm -hmm. whatever their ideology is, you know, fiscally conservative. But I think for the senators who, who worked against it, who've been super critical of the, of the, of the governor and of the, of the idea that we should be helping folks um, through this and, um, and, then, and then collecting it themselves. I think that's just, I mean, uh, without mentioning names, but that, mm -hmm. I, I think that's a tough, ironic, hypocritical place to be. Um, the others, I think, you know, uh, Cervantes and, and Munoz are both pretty successful businessmen. So um, um, I think uh, whether or not they could have absorbed this is, is some, for someone else to say. But I, I definitely think that um, that at least they recused themselves and at least they weren't against uh, the idea, right, mm -hmm. to help a lot, a lot of folks out, as as others have said, it, you know, people who need this to, mm -hmm. to keep to not just keep the doors open, especially smaller businesses, right? That's a good point there. You know, Justine, the AP found six businesses that got grants as they were suing the state for lost business. This, here's my question. I, and I, I hear Dan's point loud and clear. Just because doesn't mean you should be shut out. But I think there's a problem with breeding cynicism out there when you hear these kind of stories. Would you agree with that or is, or, or, or is that? I would. Okay. Yeah, I would. And I think um, perhaps there's not enough scrutiny on that that part of it. This reminds me of the legislative retirement debate that so many members agreed was blatantly unconstitutional and then they just turned around and, and accepted the the money. Um, and, you know, I just, there's a lot of bluster. You know, if you really take issue with the program and, and you think it's bad policy, well then maybe somebody should run an amendment to exempt legislators from it. Like, let's really talk about what that would look like. Mm -hmm. When it comes down to it, all, you know, these business owners are good at feathering their own nests and and Dan's right. You know, I don't I don't think workers who are employed by legislators should be penalized just because that's where they work. I mean, that's that's what a citizen legislature looks like. But um, but I didn't hear any talk of an exemption saying, you know, you, you've debated this bill, you know, you know, the ins and outs of it, you know, the program, maybe maybe legislators shouldn't participate. You know, that wasn't on the table. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You know, there was an example in the journal story about Hinkle uh, Family Fund Center. We all love that place. And attorney Blair Dunn, we all know, is representing them. Uh, they, got, they received a $50,000 award, but uh, Senator Feldman, they're suing at the same time. Or we're suing. It, it's, it, I, I feel for the businesses. That's difficult. You, you're, they're impatient. They're losing money. They want something to happen. But at the same time, the government is trying to help them somehow, some way. Are those two things reconcilable? Can we meet in the middle here where everyone says, oh, okay, it's a great system. I don't need to sue anybody. I should just wait for my money. How, how can we make this work for everybody equitably? Well, hypocrisy is not against the law. You know, Fair it enough. may not be desirable, <laughs> but it's not against the law. So in a way, I don't blame the, the business for applying for the grant. Um, and, and they got it because they met the... Um, they met the criteria, I guess. But remember, there are, you know, over 50% of the people who applied who didn't get the money um, and who may have needed it uh, just as much. So um, that, that raises a question in my mind. Um, and I do think that the citizens legislature, we need to really look at that again. We need to... Um, is figure out whether this kind of conflict of interest isn't just so built in that it, it just reduces credibility mm -hmm. in this institution and that we need to start looking at 
um, uh, rearranging things from the way they were set up in 1912. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a lot like how we're dealing with liquor out there from, you know, laws from 40 years ago, for gosh sake. Eric Rego, one last question. The, the journal story all, all pointed out another interesting point here. $338,000 went to 14 businesses associated with Gerald Peters. We all know Gerald, he's an art dealer in Santa Fe, been around a long time, and, and that included the Rama, Rio Chama Steakhouse, which I know every one of you on this screen has frequented during your time uh, you know, in the legislature. I'm not saying anything about Mr. Peters. I'm not saying anything's underhanded here. But same question, does that breed cynicism when you, when you, you know, read something like that? Well, you know, we've, we've asked voters in the state, you know, you know, what they think about, like, the politics around some of these issues, right? And, and mm -hmm. this, one of the things that always pulls off the mat is this idea that there's this kind of well-connected insider group, you know, politically connected group who tend to get all the spoils of government. And that really resonates across partisan lines, across regional lines in New Mexico. Like, people, the average New Mexican just wants to feel like they're being treated fairly, and they just really despise this idea that there's a kind of an in kind of group of politically connected folks who get the spoils, not just here, but on, you know, in terms of contracts sure. and all the others. Mm -hmm. I do think it really, I really sort of highlights the fact that it just, it just doesn't look good, whether Gerald Peters had anything to do with it. And uh, it just doesn't, it just doesn't look good. Mm -hmm. Hey, we're out of time this week. Good to see all of you very much. So we'll have you back soon. That is it for this week's show. We appreciate you, as always, tuning in. Encourage you to follow us on any of our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. Of course, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find this here. We encourage you to rate, subscribe, and review and share that with friends. Uh, it's a great way to get the show and take it with you wherever you go throughout the course of the week. And we've got lots of stuff throughout the week, not just uh, about a particular show for that week, lots of extras and tidbits, and we'd love to hear from you. So reach out to us in any of those ways. But we will leave you this week, with, as usual, with some final thoughts on Gene Grant and the prospect for educators, parents, teachers, staff, all the folks that are going to be uh, scrambling and uh, coping uh, with a return to in-person learning as we learned this week. It probably won't be February 8th for most, but it is coming and looks like it's a possibility before the end of the school year. It's a uh, scary time, uh, an anxiety-ridden time for lots of folks, and uh, we uh, offer up our support, as you will hear from Gene, to all those folks. But we hope you have a terrific week, and we'll be back with you again next Friday. It's hard to get a read on where most of us are concerning schools being reopened on February 8th. I suppose it's a lot like pregnancy or marriage. There's never a perfect time for either, as any parent or spouse will tell you, but you do it anyway. Now, as you heard earlier from our panelists, there's much to consider, but for me, the mental health of our kids must carry some weight in this matter. It's been a tough year on everyone, but for some of our kids, the stress of it all is too big a load to carry for long. So let's keep this in mind. During the first few days and weeks after February 8th, unseen by the public, TV cameras, or anything else, there will be extraordinarily deft displays of compassion, understanding, and yes, grief counseling of a sort. It's been a hard year for kids, filled with uncertainty, and our children will be walking in the door carrying all of it. Thank goodness for teachers. 
Sometimes it's more than ABCs.